Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 10, Fascist Italy. Okay, so, democracy had, for all practical purposes, been stripped away, and the regime had called a bluff presented by its opponents. There wasn't anyone in a position of authority to rally around, and the fascist party was in uncontested control. What was left was to settle just what a truly fascist Italy would look like, free of the limitations the old liberal order had imposed on itself. In my overview episode on fascism, I pointed out the difficulty in the ideology to define itself, and this was the first fascist regime to actually attain power. The first step was to start oppressing anything with a pulse that wasn't aligned with fascism. Beforehand, the black shirts would focus their efforts on the overtly anti-fascists, but now that there weren't many of those left, they started moving against the bystanders who had not committed themselves to the new order. Laws were enacted through 1925 and 26, restricting the freedoms of speech, press, and association. The bureaucracy of the Italian state had mostly been left alone to ensure continued working order, but now the civil servants were expected to show proper respect to the ruling party. The party itself was also brought under further control from on high. Under Roberto Farinacci's auspices, membership was restricted and even for a time closed. This was both to ensure the newly enlarged base was integrated into the existing party, and also to make membership more of an exclusive mark of status. By the end of 1926, internal appointments were made by the party leadership exclusively, which ensured the loyalties of the new members were to their patrons at the national level instead of the local Ross. Farinacci also centralized leadership in the fascist party as well, consolidating power away from the 15-man committee that preceded him, and into his own secretaryship, which in turn was beholden totally to Il Duce. In this manner, Mussolini worked to rein in the party, as its counterweight in the form of parliament withered away. The question of how fascism was supposed to play in the economy still stood, however. Keep in mind, the chaos of economic depression is what had given the fascists their window in the first place, and the movement had attracted a whole spectrum of economic thinkers. Many came from a disillusioned socialist background, like Mussolini himself, while others were content with the free market and favored the employers and the bourgeois when it came to economic policy. By 1924, there had been a recovery in the Italian economy, with a budget surplus for the first time in years, and conditions improving for the average citizen, at least compared to the years immediately following the war. However, one of the leading fascist economic figures, Edmondo Rossoni, rejected the self-centered and freewheeling approach of the liberal capitalists that still held so much sway in the new state, while also decrying what he perceived as the misguided internationalism of contemporary socialist thought. Instead, he wanted to enhance the fascist worker syndicates and maximize the number of laborers represented under that umbrella. Remember back in previous episodes that one strategy to oppose the socialist and Catholic labor unions was to establish fascist associations of their own. These syndicates were intended to organize workers in order to better manage them, not to overturn the system of private ownership and the power of the management classes. This was still looked at with suspicion by those very same management classes, as any worker organization was perceived as a threat. Rossoni, though, pressed ahead with advancing the syndicate's standing in the regime, seeing them as an obvious tool for the fascists to impose a revolution from, from above. Numerically, he found great success as he bolstered the ranks of the syndicates to nearly 2 million workers, still smaller than other labor groups, but impressive for a new organization. 
There was, though, still the test of actually bringing those numbers to bear. He was opposed by the Convindustria, the major Italian chamber of commerce. This group represented the business leaders and employers of the country. Many of this group had come to make accommodations with the fascists, either during the bloody years of squadrist violence or when it became clear that Mussolini was the new power broker of the Italian nation. Regardless of when they signed their support over to the regime, their objectives had not changed and they were anxious to ensure favorable terms with Mussolini, the ideology of some of his subordinates be damned. Rossoni and Farinacci forced the issue in March 1925 when they backed a worker strike in the city of Brescia that had been started by the local Ross, Augusto Tarati. The situation clearly displeased the Convindustria, and it was further complicated when the independent labor unions, never having denounced the socialist movement, joined with the fascist syndicates in the strike. In fact, the reason that the strike got off the ground was because of this non-fascist intervention which is not surprising given the far more experienced and committed leadership of the non-fascist groups. This little detail did not go unnoticed. It demonstrated to the party officials that their worker syndicates, which they had put so much stock in, were not terribly impressive when push came to shove. They could not influence employers, and they could not sway the majority of workers to join with them. Given the populist underpinnings of fascism, this was a little bit of a blow. The strike was eventually resolved in October 1925 after an intervention by Mussolini himself, with an agreement between the Confindustria and the syndicates, excluding the leftist-aligned unions. It was a pretty telling victory on the part of the employers. The worker councils in the factories were abolished, and management became the sole source of authority on the work floors. The syndicates scored a minor win in that they were recognized as this sole labor association that the employers would recognize. But even that was borderline worthless, as there was little incentive for the owners to ever give an inch, as they could just appeal to the regime. The workers had their mechanism to be united and speak with a collective voice, but there was no legal recourse to actually assert themselves. This was a triumph for the more economically conservative wing of the fascist movement, where in practice the party liked nothing more than to support and in turn gain the support of the more well-to-do elements of society. This shift would be embodied in the economic ideology of corporatism. In the context of Italian fascism, this was the idea of employers, workers, and the state all working in unison to better streamline economic activity. The fascist ideology in Italy was very big on the producers, a concept that encompassed both the worker and the manager. Anyone who contributed to, to production, and ergo the betterment of the nation, would find a decent place in society. A business would not be free in the truest sense, but rather organized in the most efficient manner with the goal being to maximize output, with acceptable conditions for all involved overseen by the state. The goal here was not social equality, as that would involve a distracting transfer of resources in society, but was instead a state-backed peace between worker and management with the greater edification of the nation as the end goal. This idea alarmed the Confindustria as it challenged their unfettered primacy in the workplace and added the potential of state intervention. Luckily for them, Mussolini was no economic crusader, and his idea of efficiency was fairly broad, which meant there wasn't that much intervention in actual practice. In, in April 1926, the Rocco Law was passed, named after another fascist economic thinker, Edmondo Rocco which formalized that worker negotiations and contracts would have to be made by the syndicates in order to be seen as legally binding. The syndicates being controlled by the state meant, of course, that decisions would have to be approved by the state. 
other labor organizations, like the ones that were leftist aligned, were not outlawed, but any agreements they made had no legal backing. Facing their own irrelevance, most of the major non-fascist labor groups will have dissolved themselves by 1927. The Rocco Law also meant that if labor negotiations turned into a full-on dispute, the proper channel was no longer striking, but rather to go through the judiciary, which of course was now state-controlled as well. The problem for workers was that the courts were pretty susceptible to political pressure and tended to favor the more upstanding and wealthy parties. This is not a unique feature to fascism, and is probably familiar to all of us. That kind of thing was the whole reason that workers went on strike to begin with, since strikes became a thing, as the courts were too unreliable to produce justice in the context of labor rights. But now the strikes were no longer an option. This was all good news for the con of industria, obviously, and they were keen to remain on good terms with the regime. Meanwhile, for the fascists, the situation worked for most as it brought the economy under their management, at least on paper. In practice, most fascists didn't really care about micromanaging productivity or improving workers' rights. They held the mechanisms for control, and the business leaders respected that and pledged their loyalty, so the boat did not need to be rocked further. So, within the first five years of fascist power, one of the cornerstones of the party's revolutionary thought, the breaking up of established free market interests, had been effectively tabled. That isn't to say that gestures wouldn't continue. Indeed, the idea of a corporate state merging the regime, management, and workers was not abandoned, merely undermined gradually. The syndicates continued and were expanded, and figures like Rosoni would do what they could to side with them and empower them as best they could. Under his auspices, they were assembled into a national organization that didn't fall officially under the government's chain of command. The syndicates, though, were always viewed with some measure of distrust, even by the state which supposedly backed them, as was anything that didn't eventually answer to the regime in Rome. Eventually, in November 1928, Giuseppe Botai, another fascist economist, obtained sufficient backing from Mussolini and the business community to dismantle the national organization of syndicates, and instead divide them into six smaller confederations of syndicates based on the economic sector they worked in. This move also removed Rosoni as the national leader of organized labor. He would still serve in various capacities in various ministries, but was kept away from influence over the economy. The idea of an empowered proletariat was always a talking point, and leaders often spoke of how the worker had been empowered in fascist Italy, while pointedly ignoring the socialist history of Italian labor and the now marginalized left wing of the fascist party. In practice, though, a pacified and compliant economy more than sufficed for their purposes. While bringing the economy to heel, Mussolini also had a little unfinished business on the political front. With total political power secured in the aftermath of the Mattiotti crisis, Mussolini now turned back around on the fascist party itself. On the eve of his public admission of guilt before Parliament, the party leadership had taken a worrying turn towards standing up to him. So, going into 1927, it was time to finally fix that. And now that power was secured, the fascist party really wasn't needed to maintain a balance in power. Before, they were the check against the state turning against the movement, but now the state was the movement. Mussolini had already moved to dismiss Farinacci in March 1926. He had hoped that Farinacci managing the party would mellow him out and make the powerful Ross a more compliant supporter. This was definitely a misjudgment on Mussolini's part, as Farinacci refused to stay out of the spotlight and was as pugnacious as ever, even when consolidating his boss's power. 
He had always been the Ross most ready to use violence, and was particularly noted during the Squadra's days for his excessive use of castor oil on his victims. It was also no secret that he favored allowing each local Ross a wide purview over their home turf, as long as they acknowledged the national chain of command, something Mussolini still found too threatening to his own power. Farinacci even defended Mattiotti's assassins publicly and was instrumental in their early release. Given that Mussolini was trying to build up a respectable image, this was the exact opposite of what he wanted. Another open political murder in 1925 that Farinacci again publicly supported was more than the last straw. Mussolini removed him and exiled him to the political wilderness for the next decade. One of the most powerful of the old guard could not resist their displacement, sent the desired message to the other fascist underlings. His replacement as party secretary was Augusto Turati, the Brasilia Ross that Farinacci had supported in the strikes of the previous year. Turati continued the policy of restricting membership into the party and subordinating it to the state. Instead of enforcing national laws and policy, the party started to be reduced to a more cultural institution, charged with spreading the fascist ideals to the greater population. The actual governing was now in the hands of Mussolini. Now, make no mistake, the fascist party was still a strong force in society. Many officials were either members of the party, or at very least close to some part of its leadership. In short, the leadership of the party was a group of powerful people who were fascists, rather than deriving their influence from the party itself. This was reflected in the fascist Grand Council meeting less and less as the years went on, as there really wasn't a huge need for it now. Mussolini also had full control now of dismissing and appointing new members, so that nobody could go against him unless there was a major catastrophe, like, say, losing a major war and seeing the homeland be directly invaded, which was still a ways off. At the end of 1928, the council was made a formal part of the state, but that was more an exercise in tidying up more than anything. The old conflict between Il Duce and his self-made subordinates was at an end by this point. Other major figures in the establishment of the fascist state were shunted off elsewhere. Michel Bianchi was kept occupied in various ministries, Emilio de Bono and Cesar de Vici were packed off to the colonies, and Italo Balbo was eventually placed in charge of the Air Force. This last appointment might have been a ploy to put Balbo in a position to fail, given that he had no experience with aircraft, but if that was the intent, it kind of backfired. Balbo would undergo personal pilot training, and while Italy lacked the resources to build a first-rate air force, both his own flights across the globe and the ones he ordered would put both the fascist state and himself in the limelight as modern and forward-thinking. Indeed, Balbo would be the most recognized and accomplished fascist statesman both at home and abroad, which caused Mussolini no small amount of chagrin, as he was seen as the only likely rival. There would never be an open fracture between the two, but Mussolini took care not to rely too much on his most capable subordinate. For other figures in the fascist state, they could all expect to be shuffled from one ministry to another, never settling long enough to set up a true power base of their own. Mussolini himself settled into absolute power mode during these years. In December 1925, he was given the new position of head of government, replacing the prime minister spot. He was now independent of Parliament and could only be dismissed by the king. And in January 1926, he had the power of issuing laws by decree, which meant that he could override Parliament without so much as a consultation. Many of the Aventine politicians tried to filter back into Parliament in early 1926, 
but Mussolini barred them from, from being readmitted. By the end of 1926, all non-fascist parties had been dissolved. And when the fascist Grand Council was made part of the government at the end of 1928, they were actually given the authority to confirm who succeeded to the Italian throne. It was a striking demonstration of just how far Mussolini's personal authority had grown. The king could do little more at this point than make a half-hearted protest at the assault on his own position. One other bit of domestic business was making the final peace with the Catholic Church. Mussolini had gained a valuable supporter in Pope Pius IX, and while the two could not be said to be similar or terribly friendly, they had a very effective working relationship. This culminated in the Lateran Agreements of February 1929. The Pope formally recognized the Italian nation. Italy recognized the city-state of the Vatican, and a large sum of money was transferred to the Church to compensate their territorial loss of central Italy over 50 years previously. In exchange, the Church was assured a place of primacy in the lives of the Italian people, which was fine with Mussolini as their policy would be one of cooperation with the regime. The lingering anti-fascists among the ex-PPI were silenced, as even they did not wish to go against the Mother Church. Domestically, this went over well, as the majority of Italians identified greatly with the Church, which made the reconciliation between that Church and the state a greater feather in Mussolini's cap. It was also an international coup, as Mussolini had brought an end to a lingering issue among Catholics the world over. Now they wouldn't have to awkwardly shuffle their feet whenever a dispatch from the Vatican came begging for all good Catholics to pray for the Holy See's deliverance from a blasphemous Italian state. Foreign governments applauded this straightforward and permanent solution to the Church's grievance. This popular move also raises the question, how did the common populace feel about Mussolini and the fascists? Reliable polling is hard to come by in authoritarian states at the best of times, but given the chaos of the immediate post-war years, most Italians were at least willing to give the new government a shot. There wasn't much desire for a civil war, and Mussolini made assurances to institutions like the monarchy and church that he was there to safeguard their interests as pillars of Italian society. The discredited liberal government was not mourned, and the leftist wing of society had been badly beaten down. All the moves that Mussolini made to reassure the populace that he was there to provide the strong leadership that liberal democracy had failed to were received enthusiastically, and Il Duce's personal appeal was quite high among the populace, something that he was sensitive to maintain through his entire time in power. Mussolini began building a cult of personality, presenting himself as a virile, active figure compared to the tired, limp prime ministers of yesteryear. He, of course, had distinctive speeches atop balconies. He started shaving his head to erase his balding, whitening hair, and always took pains to exert himself, or at least the appearance of exerting himself. By this last part, I mean he wanted to be a man of action. He would fly in newfangled planes, keep sports cars, and helped harvest wheat while shirtless. If you've seen Vladimir Putin memes, it's the exact same thing. And people ate it up. They identified with the dynamic figure that got results. Maybe not the projected ones, or even the intended ones, but he got results. He also tried to maintain the facade of ruling with a light hand, though a series of assassination attempts on his life prompted a crackdown. In November 1926, a month after the last attempt on his life, Mussolini issued a decree calling for the monitoring of anti-fascist activity, both real and imagined. This also led to the fascist party being declared the sole legal party of Italy, followed by a suspension of national elections. 
which was mostly a formality, but it is worth noting just how fast the structure of liberal Italy was torn down. And to think bringing the fascists into government was supposed to shackle them to the existing political process. A year later, in November 1927, a special tribunal was set up. If you know anything about authoritarian regimes, the words special tribunal never mean anything good. This was one of those groups set up that could enact summary judgment without even the show of due process. The first years were somewhat tamed by authoritarian standards, with convictions of anti-fascist crimes being handed down in only 18% of cases, and those resulted mostly in imprisonment. The handful of executions were almost all conducted on Slavic nationalists, which kind of shows the regime's prejudice on subversive activity. The growing secret police also stuck mostly to monitoring the populace instead of actively terrorizing them, though this was due more to a limited budget than anything else. Fascist Italy definitely ruled with a lighter hand than the Nazis in Germany, although this was due again to Mussolini perceiving the regime as not strong or established enough to exert a more forcible level of control. He calculated that his government couldn't exert itself everywhere, so instead he relied on intimidation tactics to keep dissenters in line. But, as I described earlier, most of the populace was willing to work with the fascists and had a favorable view of their new leader. His efforts to improve the material conditions of the nation were also designed to enhance his prestige. One of his personal interventions into economic life was the devaluation of Italy's currency, the lira. The inflation that Italy had suffered had badly hurt the purchasing power of the Italian consumer, as it caused a steep rise in prices. It also made Italy's currency appear weak and unreliable to the world, at least in the eyes of Mussolini. The actual strength and weakness of a currency is a very relative thing that depends on context, but Mussolini was more interested in the lira being known as a quote-unquote strong currency. The stronger lira had the effect of hurting exporters and forcing a decline in wages. Attempts were made to ensure that, that prices and rents were correspondingly slashed, but this was at best an imperfect process that wound up hurting the average Italian. So too did the deflation hurt those Italians in debt, most strikingly the farmers. Those who had loans now saw the value of that debt they had to pay back increase, with less total money coming in to service that debt. It did have the effect, though, of encouraging domestic business as foreign markets became less appealing. This was only further encouraged by a series of tariffs in the late 20s that worked to protect the nation's industrial and agricultural sectors. Then there was the propagandic battle for grain, a large push for Italy to produce more grain-based crops over the mostly non-foodstuff cash crops. The idea was that it was in the national interest for the country to be able to feed itself. If you're picking up on a protectionist trend here, you're right. Mussolini is shaping Italy to be more and more into an autarky, which is to say a self-contained economy. Calling it that at this early stage would not be quite right, and it's going to be after the Depression that this process accelerates, but its beginnings are here. This push for self-sufficiency will lead Italy, and later its Axis allies as well, to look towards foreign expansion for easier access to resources. The concentration of economic activity within the borders of Italy also meant that economic life was easier to manage and control from Rome as well. What did the international community think of all these changes in Italy? They were mostly positive, even in the democracies of the victorious world powers. Uh, there is admittedly an element of racism that should be noted. To many foreign observers, Italy had been unmanageable, and its people unsuited to the responsibilities of democratic government. 
Mussolini appeared to be a more reliable partner than a carousel of revolving prime ministers. The British and Americans thought very highly of Il Duce in particular, and many prominent leaders in both countries welcomed the imposition of order, especially in the way he had crushed the socialists and communists in the years after the war. The French were a little more concerned, as Italy was a natural Mediterranean competitor, and the prospect of them getting their act together and becoming aggressive was a danger. But they also saw them as at least predictable now, and while Germany was weak, France was confident that they could handle the Italians. Italy, for its part, was not quite ready for full-on invasions of foreign lands. There had been a brief attempt to exert an Italian claim on southwestern Anatolia over in Turkey after World War I, but given the domestic chaos, that effort was quickly abandoned. There was one notable foreign adventure, namely the Corfu Crisis of 1923. Some of you may be aware that, that the Italians invaded the nation of Greece during World War II. Well, that wasn't the first time they tried to take, to take advantage of their neighbor on the other side of the Adriatic. Tensions had been rising between Greece and Italy already, with the prior Italian government having made the offer of giving the Dodecanese Islands sands roads over to Greece after southwest Anatolia had been secured. Well, the Italians had been forced to quit Anatolia, and now that Mussolini was in charge, he told the Greeks they would not be handing over the islands as a result. The Greeks didn't see things that way and continued pressing for them. Mussolini, in turn, got Italy involved as a League of Nations mediator between Greece and Albania, who were also having a border dispute in order to get back at the Greeks. The Greeks saw this for what it was and protested the mediation. Mussolini, meanwhile, was gearing to snatch up the island of Corfu off the northwestern coast of Greece, maybe in order to exert some unsettled pressure on them. An Italian admiral was traveling in the Albanian-Greek border area as part of the mediations and was caught by assailants and assassinated on August 27, 1923. Five people were murdered in total, which took place on Greek territory. There was the expected finger-pointing over responsibility, with the Greeks raising the possibility of Albanian bandits, but the Italians issued an ultimatum to the Greeks on the 29th. The next day, the Greeks indicated they could only partially comply with that ultimatum. The Italians took this as their green light, and on the 31st sent in an invasion fleet, and occupied the island of Corfu after an initial, after an initial bombardment. Mussolini, still in the first year of his rule at the time, reveled in the prestige this initial success brought him at home. The other powers were caught off guard, with France currently having its army occupying the Ruhr Valley in Germany, and Britain focused on trying to end that particular crisis up there. Now there was a potential for war in the Balkans, which everybody knew what that might entail. The Yugoslavians, always at odds with Italy over the latter's Adriatic claims, came out in support of Greece. Mussolini talked a big game about annexing the island, but the other powers weren't ready to go that far into appeasement territory just yet. After the initial euphoria wore off, Mussolini realized he couldn't take on France and the UK if they decided to actually move against him. Luckily for him, they were in no mood for military action and forced Greece to provide a ceremonial public apology and cash payment to Italy, both as an I'm sorry and to pay for Italy's own expenses in invading Corfu. This diplomacy was notable in that when a dispute arose between the great powers, the League of Nations, which they were all party to, was cut out of the process. Which might not be a good sign for that international body, as disputes between major powers still were, were resolved outside of it. While Mussolini had to leave the island, 
the events also forced Greece to drop its claims to the Dodecanese. It also caused the British to drop its stonewalling of the Italians on various colonial territories, namely the Jubaland region of southern Somalia and a minor strip of land on the Libyan-Egyptian border. Which, now that I bring it up, I haven't really talked about the Italian colonial empire a whole lot up to this point, mostly because it hadn't had too much of an effect on events up to this point. The main clusters were in East Africa, where Italy controlled modern-day Eritrea and the southern part of Somalia since 1886. There had been an attempted invasion of Ethiopia, but that had catastrophically failed. In 1911, Italy haphazardly invaded Libya and the Dodecanese Islands, taking these lands from the Ottoman Empire. The acquisitions were of marginal value, boasting relatively low populations and few resources compared to the colonial empires of other powers. Agricultural goods were the main products of these territories, and industries were tiny. Of note, Eritrea and Somalia would produce capable native soldiers, which was good for Italy, as its administration of Libya brought, no- brought them nothing but trouble. During World War I, Libya and Egypt witnessed a revolt of natives following a sect of Islam called the Senussi. For years, Entente forces had to comb the desert against this insurgency, tying down precious resources in the middle of the war. They managed to negotiate a peace, but only after granting a great deal of autonomy to the natives in Libya. The situation grew bad enough for the Italians that in 1923, Mussolini sent in a new invasion force. For a year, the army worked to regain the country, and was mostly successful, except in Cyrenaica. Now, Libya can be divided into three broad regions. The first and most populous is Tripolitania, which, appropriately enough, was centered around the city of Tripoli, which is to the northwest. To the southwest, was the region of Fezzan, which, while distant from the coasts and well into the northern Sahara, had notable population centers. The eastern half of the country was Cyrenaica, whose most important city was Benghazi. The Italians occupied the western half of the country as well as the coasts of Cyrenaica, but the hills to the south of those coasts proved excellent bases for guerrilla fighters. The fighting between the Italians and Senussi would drag out until 1932, and the fascist government would start rounding up native populations they suspected of sympathizing with the Senussi into concentration camps, resulting in tens of thousands of deaths in an area that is not highly populated. This was matched with large-scale persecutions and restrictions on movement through the very open expanses of, of Libya. The war dragged so badly that troops recruited from East Africa were sent in to try and not overly commit the regular army to such a debilitating campaign in the desert. Ultimately, Victory was achieved more through exhaustion on the part of the Senussi than anything else. The land itself was virtually worthless. The Italians never discovered Libya's oil deposits, so the entire affair was simply to maintain prestige and something Mussolini could point to on the map and be proud of. So here we have reached the end of Italy during the 1920s. After years of effort, Mussolini was now in more or less control of the Italian nation and empire. The concentration of power compared to previous governments was enormous. How did a failed schoolteacher and ex-socialist achieved all this? How did we get up to a thoroughly oppressed society where public freedoms had been so stripped? The simple answer is that Italy had not been terribly free to begin with. For most of its history, until the enfranchisement laws of 1919, huge swaths of the country were cut out of politics, and as such were not engaged with the process. When you can't vote, democracy might as well not exist. And by the time the voting reforms went through, The country was enduring the strain of a massive war and its aftermath. Then there was the vast inequality 
all across Italy. The economic insecurity weighed on everyone, and the liberal order was only successful in protecting the privileges of the elites. Another reason was the overpromises of the war years. The excitement and drive to victory had led to dreams of international respect among the nationalists and material gain among the impoverished lower classes. When those failed to appear, despite all the sacrifice and getting an economic recession in its place, uh, the momentary faith that had been present was shattered, to say the least. Which leads me to my last conclusion as to why the fascists were able to advance in so short a time with so little initial support and then maintain their hold on power. It was the upper and middle class reaction to the rise of socialism in 1919. The socialists, by and large, played by peaceful rules. They went on strike and in some cases seized factories and held out labor in exchange for concessions. But this was done without major violence and so the liberal government couldn't produce the justification for a meaningful crackdown on them. The socialists demanded better pay for workers, better conditions, and an increased say in how economic activity was managed, whether it be on the factory floor or out in the fields. The upper and middle classes didn't like this challenge to their authority or status, and were immensely annoyed at the government in Rome for not doing anything to protect their profit margins. Change in election laws in 1919 also meant that they were losing their ability to influence that very same government. And once their profits started being threatened, they stopped identifying with Rome very quickly. They turned to the fascists to protect their property and money. That was it, really. The fascists were unelectable on their own and didn't have the resources or backing to survive. When the employers panicked, though, the fascists and their squadrists were seemingly the only ones to be turned to. And it just so happened that the fascists didn't need a legal justification to crack down. They themselves were self-justifying and didn't describe to rules or laws. So they went to war with the socialists, and the employers cheered them on as defenders. There admittedly could have been an incident that swung popular opinion back around. Think of if the Mattiotti crisis had happened very soon before the march on Rome, or something like that. Or if the king had deployed the army at any point, that would have changed everything. But it's all history now. So I'll leave Italy here for now. When we round back to them in the 30s, Mussolini will be at the height of his powers and prestige. We all know how it will turn out, but the journey there will at least be interesting. Next week will actually be a standalone biography episode on Benito Mussolini, tracking his early life up to the public debut of the fascist movement in March 1919. This will be a little something I'll do for all the major leaders, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. See you next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening.